0: Three minutes late. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the holy Sabbath day that you've given to us. We know the Sabbath was made for man, as Jesus said, and man and women, and we just uh, delight in it and embrace your presence and to want to know you more. And I know there's a lot of information that we have to encounter to understand this conflict between Christ and Satan using the media and. Um, We don't want to lose our our glimpses of Jesus. We don't want to um, have this be just information, but may it be transformation. May we be prompted to break free from the chains that bind, and that we might know that we are truly serving you and not man. And that is our desire and prayer. Be with us and speak. May this not be a speaker's message, but yours. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our scripture this afternoon. See to it that no one takes you captive. Did you hear that word, captive? Are, are there agendas out there? <laughs> you know, I've, I've been saying this every Sabbath afternoon, most weekends of the year for so many years. And we were just talking about it. And I always go, are there maybe agendas out there seeking to take people captive? And you're like, yeah, Scott, tell us something we don't know. But it's interesting that you know, before before the crazy times that we live in now, it really, it was a stretch and a challenge for some people. They'd be like, oh, you know, he's on Amazing Discoveries, this is conspiracy theory. And I want you to just hear, uh, first of all, the Word of God. It says there are agendas out there seeking to take us captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. But the power is that we can take, by the Spirit of God, we can take every thought captive. So we don't need to be victimized. We don't need to be enslaved and taken captive, spiritually, mentally, by the, 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 the powers of this world like this Edward Bernays. I want you to hear their own words so that it's not, you know, during Q&A sometimes, you know, it's, okay, that's, that's, in, that's, your, that's your thoughts. Um, what I like to do when I do seminars is stick with information, facts, research, studies, most importantly, Bible truth, and the quotations of the people who count. So, if during Q&A, you could just be like, okay, that was, that was, you know, as far as your meal goes, you know, that was like the carrot sticks that precede the meal, and now you really dig in, that kind of thing, you know what I mean? So, Q&A is just kind of fun, I like to interact, but really what I want you to hear is not from me. I want you to hear from these guys so they can tell you what they've been up to for a hundred years. Edward Bernays said, if we understand, oh, by the way, who is he? He's the nephew of Sigmund Freud, founder of modern psychology. Uh, He worked in propaganda for the U.S. government during World War I, after which he went to work for the corporations and established modern public relations as we know it today, modern advertising industry as we know it today. It began 100 years ago. Popular culture with all the stars and with the fashions and everybody with their standardized way of dress and speak and hair and products and consumption. That all began in the 1920s, the roaring 20s. Maybe you remember hearing about that in your U.S. history class. But... He's the guy that really was at the forefront of this, making this happen, and he wrote in his book called Propaganda, he said, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses according to our will without their knowing about it? Now, isn't that a chilling statement? It's like, he just admitted it. He just said what they are going to be doing. He's, If we can, we're going to do it, And you're going to hear they did do it, but he called it the group mind. That's an interesting term, the group mind. Uh, I would think of minds as individual things, right? Your mind, you know, your individual mind, a child's mind develops. But he says there's this thing called the group mind, and he goes on and says the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in, that's confusing, democratic society, I thought a democratic society would be one of individualism and freedom of thought. But he's saying it's important in our free society to have people's habits and opinions manipulated. You might be like, why did he say that? Well, if you think about this from the standpoint of the power elite, who have always existed, there's always been a ruling class, and they've always sought to (laughs) rule things according to their advantage and keep the people in line. Whether it's monarchies or, 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 or emperors, Caesars, uh, barrows, kings, dictators, you know where I'm, what I'm after, don't you? I can see the brother getting up. He's like, he needs some help. <laughs> I'm bad at multitasking. Thank you so much for doing that. I totally forgot to plug the laptop in. This thing would conk out on me in about 30 minutes if I didn't get it plugged in. So he's saying in a, in a free society, we can't, in democratic society, you don't have the luxury of just being able to rule with brute force because the people will vote you out, right? So we can't rule the way that the ruling class has always ruled throughout history. In a democratic society, thank you, we have to use the methods of manipulation. In a different quote, he says, we are the ones that pull the wires that control the public mind. He goes on and says, those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. So it's not Washington, it's not a dictator, Is the minds are controlled, you see? So there's an illusion of freedom. It's like, hey, nobody's controlling. We're worshiping and everything's free and good. But he's like, wait, there's an invisible government governing the minds of the people. We are governed, our minds molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. That was an amazing set of statements given 100 years ago as the sort of founding constitution, if you will, of the invisible government through media which was warned about in a Seventh-day Adventist publication in 1884, Signs of the Times, where it was predicted that through the channel of mesmerism, Satan comes more directly to the people of their generation, but also works with that power, which is to characterize his efforts near the close of probation. This is prophetic uh, language here, referencing right before the end of time, Satan is going to use this power of mesmerism Now, um, I don't know a lot of people that go to a hypnotist, and that's like their thing. A few people do, but this quote is warning that this is going to be some widespread strategy of the devil to manipulate the mass mind, and I thought, well, it's not really happening, but, you know, this is a credible source to me, and so I'm going, maybe it is happening. Maybe I just haven't thought deeply enough about it. Maybe there's mass hypnosis going on. Light and sound, according to Dr. Stephen Fretag, who's writing on modern methods of hypnosis... He says, light and sound do the work for deep relaxation in a fraction of time of traditional methods by using specific frequencies of audio and visual input. Are you thinking with me right now? Specific frequencies of light, a flashing light, a repetitive flash of a screen maybe, is that something that could alter the functioning of our brains and lower our state of consciousness so that we're in a subconscious state or a quasi-hypnotic state? Well, if your brainwaves are in beta right now, you're thinking, you're listening, you're evaluating. Come now, let us reason together. Your moral filter is up. But when you slip down into a lower brainwave frequency called alpha waves, it's what people who are engaged in new age meditation are trying to achieve. It's where you're in a highly suggestible, dreamy, hypnotic state. And theta and delta are sleep states. Alpha is what we all pass through every night on our way to sleeping, but... If it can be artificially induced and held there, well, that's a form of hypnosis. Psychophysiologist Thomas Mulholland found that after just 30 seconds of watching television, and again, this is theatrical-style entertainment television. You're not watching the sermon of the Amazing Facts broadcast that I had the joy and privilege to do a few weeks ago. Uh, This is not media on the brain on DVD. No, this is watching entertainment. uh, What happens is the brain begins to produce alpha waves which indicates torpid, almost comatose rates of activity. Alpha brainwaves are associated with unfocused, overly receptive states of consciousness. I should note that the goal of hypnotists is to induce slow brainwave states. Alpha waves are present during the light hypnotic state used by hypnotherapists for suggestion therapy. Viewers automatically enter a trance state while watching television. Huh. Isn't that something? That's been known for decades by the way. This is not some like novel idea that you know, I came up with. This has been known. It alters brainwave function and puts you into a light hypnotic state while watching entertainment television. Um, This is a clip of a professional hypnotist. I won't play the clip for you, but his name is Mark J. Ryan. And in this clip, he talks about dream hypnosis. And basically, yeah, he just explains what this is. And so I won't play the clip, but He's a professional hypnotist, so he very much knows the craft. He knows the, the 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 skill. And he says, I just got back from watching the best movie I've ever watched. It was called Inception. And the reason that it was such a good movie is because it did such a good job of hypnotizing the viewers. Really? He got my attention when he said that. He said it was a wonderful film. A wonderful film because it hypnotized people so effectively? Which is especially surprising from him because he also says, you know, I don't watch television and movies and and at all cuz I know what they're trying to do. I know the methods that are being used. All Hollywood studios are using hypnotic methods. They u- they use it in a nefarious way, particularly the commercials. And so he says he's he's given up watching Hollywood entertainment because of its hypnotic effects. But he said, this one's the exception because they were planting good things in your subconscious that are going to germinate and heal you. and like That's spiritualism, right? We just read that. That's Satan using mesmerism in the last days. Amazing clip. It's eight minutes long. It's on disc two of media on the brain if you're going to pick up DVDs after sundown. Right now, I'm not going to play the clip because it's a little long for our purposes right now. But that's what he said. Amazing from a professional hypnotist saying, all Hollywood studios are doing this. Not just this one movie, and most of what they are doing is, his words, nefarious, nefarious. That means evil intentions. Somebody asked about music. It does the same thing, rock music, rock-style music. Juanita McElwyn, Ph.D., retired chair of music therapy in Phillips University, wrote, rock-style music bypasses the frontal lobe and our ability to reason and make judgments about it. So just like television, she says, it can produce a hypnotic effect. So that's from the scientific perspective. She's saying that's what she's observed in her in her research. But also the musicians somehow knew this. Um, Jimi Hendrix said, music is a spiritual thing of its own. You can hypnotize people with the music. And when you get them at their weakest point, you can preach into the subconscious what you want to say. Well, are they preaching the Bible? And in fact, if you could have an evangelistic series where you hypnotize everybody and preach the Bible, would you do that? No, because that's not moral, right? We want uh, to to offer our will to God. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So the will is engaged, and we choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. So we would never use such a method, but still, uh, the entertainment industry, the music industry, what kind of messages are they preaching into the subconscious when we're humming along to that beat of that rock music or whatever the style of music is that's a heavy beat. I'll get into the beat because it's the beat that does it. Um, Dr. Richard Pellegrino said, Music can trigger a flood of human emotions and images that have the ability to instantaneously produce very powerful changes in emotional states. He says, take it from a brain guy. In 25 years of working with the brain, I still cannot affect a person's state of mind the way that one simple song can. That's a strong statement from a brain scientist. Doctors Newberg and Waldman at the University of Pennsylvania studied different religious practices and how they affect the brain. And one of them was the charismatic worship style where they would get the, the rock music, the you know, exciting gospel praise and worship, you know, heavy beat type of Christian music. And they would have the Christian worshiper with the headphones getting into their ecstatic feeling with the music. And what they found in the brain at that time when they would get into that state of their, of their mind, the prefrontal cortex was turned off. It was negating the frontal lobe. So it's the style of music that's really doing it not the lyrics and the degrading, horrible, demonic nastiness that's in our music. We'll talk about that. The worldly music is putting out a bunch of demonic trash. But the musical style itself can have an effect on the brain, irrespective of what the lyrics are. That's kind of like this morning when we saw television, like, hey, even if it's morally harmless, it's that style of the the, the rapid frame of reference of the television and the entertainment that is inducing limbic system up, frontal lobe down, and that's going to have an impact on our character even if the content isn't harmful. Um, it's the style of media that is. Musician William Ora said, We had discovered something that people knew eons ago. That polyrhythms can be used for hypnotic induction, for altered states of consciousness, even for soul travel. Now poly means many, Right? Because a rhythm in itself is not a problem to the brain. That instrument right there has percussion built right into it when the hammer hits the string, so you can have a beat to the song that you can follow, a rhythm to the song. That's appropriate. The song has time, and you know when to sing, and you know when the notes are going to be played. That's appropriate. Um, But what he's talking about is multiple rhythmic elements in the music that are jarring the system in an unnatural way that the brain wasn't designed to respond to, as normal, sacred, beautiful music that you sing in church. Um, This is Mickey Hart. Now, he's not a brain scientist, but you know what? He's an amateur cultural anthropologist. He's written books on history and present world throughout throughout tribes of all the globe, on every continent. And he looks back at these pagan uh, worship styles, and he says, everywhere you look around the world, people are using drums, to, what does the next thing say there, alter consciousness. He loves it. He's a part of it. He's not criticizing it. He says, I have discovered, along with many others, the extraordinary power of music, particularly percussion, to influence the human mind and body. So that's, uh, that's an eye-opener. Um, by the way, when I mentioned that rhythm itself is not problematic, did you know that there's a kind of music that is rhythmless called New Age music? And uh, I remember when I was coming out of the world and giving up some of these musical styles to try to focus on sacred musical sounds, I, I, I came across a CD on the end cap at Target, and I was like, oh, what's this? It's relaxing, like, nature music. Oh, that sounds good, right? But then it said, this new-age style track will alter your brainwave frequency and put you into a nice, relaxing Alpha state of the brain, so it's new age right and that's that's spiritualism So there, there's a pit on both sides of that. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are really that tempted You know normally we, we want the exciting you know heavy beat style music At least I did because I played in a rock band I'll show you in a minute because I know this is hard don't well, i just show you right now because uh, I, this is a hard teaching who can accept it say many uh, But that was me in 1998 on October 31. This was after we got saved by the way and we, we were dressed like demons on Halloween. And this was at a church. Um, this is the barn off the site of the church. And they're like, yeah, just let the young people have a big old party with their rock band. And so I'm not playing the music for obvious reasons, but I want to show you as a testimony what the Lord does when you truly come out of Babylon. You know what I'm saying? It's like this was the God saved thing because we were hooping and hollering all excited about something. Um, but then uh, you look back and you're like, boy... I didn't. I didn't. Um, I, I, the Lord had a work to do yet in my life and on my heart. And I just praise God day by day. he's still got a work to do on me. And every one of us can grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So um, the new age thing, also by the way, not just the polyrhythm, but the but the rhythmless new age music. Have you ever heard it in a health food store? Like you go into the health food store, that's kind of you know the Buddha statues and the dream catchers on the wall, and it, it's the kind of music where it's like. You walk in, and it's kind of eerie, you know what I mean? (coughs) And I'm like, honey, can we grab the almond milk and get out of here? Because I just don't have the right feeling in this way. So um, (laughs) I'll give you more on that when we get to Little Richard, but uh, there's more on music coming, but... We're in the section right now on mind control. We haven't even started talking about the music industry yet. But Bertrand Russell, really, just like Edward Bernays, totally admits what they were doing. He says in the 20th century, perhaps the most important of all the modern agents of entertainment, is that what it says? No, propaganda is the cinema. The cinema is an agent of propaganda, leading to almost worldwide uniformity, conform to this world, uniform way, the group mind. The great majority of young people in almost all civilized countries derive their ideas of love, of honor, of the way to make money, and of the importance of good clothes. In other words, their whole worldview is given to them by the evening spent in seeing what Hollywood thinks good for them. Did that make everybody collectively shudder at that moment? I doubt, he says, whether all the churches and schools combined have as much influence as the cinema on the opinions of the, of the young. Let that sink in. Are we exposing our young people to the control system of the entertainment industry? And then we think, well, we've got them in the church school. We're, we've got a, we go to church, uh, or we've got good teachers at the local public school, and they're teaching them good things. Well, if they're being exposed to that, all the good stuff, he says, won't even outweigh it. He says the producers of Hollywood are the high priests of a new religion. That's a serious statement. It's not secular entertainment, is it? It's the new religion. The result is that any defects in the status quo become known only to the... What does he mean? Defects in the status quo. Here we are as the controllers of society. And we might be messing people over a little bit, and they might notice some defects. Like, hey, wait a minute. This isn't necessarily best for our interest and that of our children. And he says, if there are any defects, the only people who will know it are those who are willing to spend their leisure time otherwise than in amusement. Did you catch that? The only people who will notice what we're doing to them are the people who break free from that state of amusement. So those who are under the spell are not thinking because they're just sheerly in a state of entertainment. That means to be, to be possessed in a state and kept that way. Entertainment, amusement, same concept. They are, these are, of course, a small minority. So the people who do things other than entertainment are a small minority. So like, we've got the great majority of young people in almost all civilized countries who derive their ideas of love and money and honor and the way to make money and good clothes and all of that. The fashion, the finance, how to be. What's your value system? The majority of people we get, but there's a small minority who do things other than amusement, like you're doing this afternoon and who are thinkers, who are searchers for truth, who say, Lord, show me your will. I want to follow it. I want to be prepared for those final deceptions, because I know things are not right, and I know there are agendas seeking to take us captive, as it said in the opening scripture in Colossians. He thinks that this small group is negligible, at least most of the time. And then he says there is, however, a certain instability about the whole system in the event of unsuccessful wars. This is one example that where people might wake up. The system that's unstable might break down. And the population, which had grown accustomed to amusements, might be driven by boredom into serious thought. That was what we were just talking about earlier when the question came, you know, the mind control. How do we understand that in light of prophecy? And I wanted to have the positive spin on it because I know the whole world wonders after the beast. We're not naive about that. But the, the good news is so much awakening During a time of some type of crisis that people go, hey, wait a minute something's not right and He says well, they'll be driven into serious thought the problem is it's harder to find Boredom these days because of Netflix and social media So you know you'd have to go to the cinema back then and watch one movie and then you're back home with some serious thought So today they have a stronger system than they did in his day So he was worried about their system losing control But it appears to be losing control in our day in many ways. But here's some of the high priests of a new religion. One of them is named Paul Schrader. He said, we are there to thumb our nose at your values. We don't care if you like us. We don't like you. People think that Hollywood has principles, morals, and values. It doesn't. You appreciate the man's honesty. Yes, go ahead. What's that? Oh, I lost it, and then it's back. Oh, I better not touch the cord. I think I was touching the cord. I'll bet you that's your problem. We were trying to figure out why the system wasn't working. It may be a bad cable. Test if you can borrow one from somebody, test it out with a laptop up here, That's a laptop you don't normally use, and see. If it's not the cable, then it's my input. But my, no, it couldn't be my input because my computer was recognizing it. So then it's a puzzle to me. Why would it be the connection? Ah, anyway, there are sometimes spiritual explanations for these things. We've been praying, right? Okay, so he says, you religious people out there, Hollywood doesn't have values. We don't like you, and we're thumbing our nose at your values. And I don't share that so we just get mad at him, because there is a culture war, yeah, but our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Our battle is against the principalities and powers of darkness, the Bible says. This is um, David Putnam, movie producer. He said, movies are powerful. Good or bad, they tinker around inside your brain. They steal up on you in the darkness of the cinema to form or, what's the next word? Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In short, cinema is propaganda. Another filmmaker, Kevin Smith said, I always like to think of it as like, I've got them sitting there, whip a little message at them, whip a little moral at them, while they're in an altered state of consciousness in an alpha trance, receptive and open, in a subconscious state to whatever suggestions are made. Whip a little of what my view of the world is, because that's what every good filmmaker does. So all of the filmmakers, they have a worldview. They have an idea. What they believe is good. And it's anti-biblical in almost every case. It is evil. Evil being called good, as the Bible says. The founder of MTV, Robert Pittman, said, The strongest appeal you can make is emotionally. If you can get their emotions going. That's the limbic system on, by the way. You can make them forget their logic. Yes, he actually said this. Frontal lobe off, you've got them. That was quoted in Youth Culture 101 by Walt Mueller. Oh yeah, he also said at MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds, we own them. So I know this gets kind of confrontational when you hear this and the blood starts to boil. You want to gather gather your children in like at the time of the Exodus. I agree, amen. Um, But remember to direct the righteous indignation not at these people on the screen as if they are the enemy. I know they've declared themselves as enemies. I get it. But they are victims in the devil's snare, right? They are victims in the devil's snare, and agents of his nonetheless. But um, be sure that we keep the focus there. Oh, this, that, this quote brings that right out. Uh, this advertising executive, a CEO lady, of a, a lady CEO of an um, advertising agency, she said, we've taken a page from Satan's book. Find a point of weakness and lust in every man, woman, and child, and target that weakness to make them want to buy the product. That sounds pretty nefarious, doesn't it? We're taking a page from Satan's book. The CEO of HBO was asked, now how do you get so many people to watch your your streaming service? He said, well, what we're in the business of doing is building addicts, building video addicts. That, that should have been a big scandal, right? When somebody comes out, imagine if the cigarette companies got caught with a statement like that. That would be a big scandal. But media addiction, we shrug our shoulders at it. Totally transforming how we are being human and what our levels of empathy empathy and suicide and mental health and addiction. Ah, we're just, It's just addiction. Addiction is no big deal, right? Has anybody seen addiction? Dealt with addiction? It's not, it's not fun. Um, James U. McNeil, pioneer of marketing to children, said the consumer embryo begins to develop. Oh man, as a father, this one does get my blood boy a little bit. I need to go out and chop some wood sometimes when I am confronted with these people. The consumer embryo begins to develop during the first year of existence. How dare you? That baby in the mother's arms, you're targeting him as a consumer? Children begin their consumer journey in infancy. And they certainly deserve consideration as consumers at that time. That is so diabolical. Those children deserve that protection. But, but he, he pioneered it and they started that in the 1980s. They deregulated all of that in the 80s because he was advocating this in the 70s and laying the groundwork for it. And Maybe some of you remember growing up in a time where advertisements were not targeting kids. Well, they really did in the world I grew up in in the 80s. I don't remember the time before that. They were going right for the kids with all the commercials with everything and uh, childhood spending and the nag factor and begging parents for stuff and parents buying stuff for their kids and kids becoming really, really spoiled um, started right after that. Is that any coincidence? It's not. But um, the media targets the children, but also the worldly schooling system. And I want to share with you a little bit from the seminar called Schooled, the history of, of, of how we ended up with the schooling system that we have shaping the minds of children. And by the way, I was a public school teacher and I had colleagues who were wonderful people, so this isn't an indictment of... Every person who's working in this system to try to help children—children children from struggling families, children from not struggling as uh, struggling families—just just caring, right? They're are wonderful, wonderful people. But the origins of the system are diabolical, and to the extent that we can't break free from those uh, those those control mechanisms within the system, uh, we become we, we start beating our heads against the wall as teachers. Quite frankly, it's one of the reasons I uh, was happy to to move on. But it goes back to the Jesu- the time of the Jesuits. Um, In the 1500s, there was a Protestant Reformation. And then Rome wanted to recapture the Protestant countries for its uh, papal control. And the Jesuits were the agency to do that. And the the, the Jesuits formed a, a methodology of education, or of schooling, I should call it. The Jesuits provided one sort of education for boys who were to become Ordinary men of the world so there was the mass Generalized education and then another special form of education for those who were to become the members So they were going to be inducted as members in the Jesuit society And he says the ordinary people are going to get one type of education these guys will get a specialized education Well, what is the ordinary one ordinary men and women will be expected to be? Docile industrious punctual I like punctual I like industrial industrious, but you see that this is like automatons when you hear they're not just industrious and punctual. They are docile and thoughtless and contented with whatever lot you are assigned, whatever you are told. You are not to think critically and question. You don't, you do not question the reality that is presented to you. You do not think. You are thoughtless. You're not to have a spine of moral virtue. You're to be docile. We will shape it for you. That was the Jesuit model. Now, it didn't stop with the Jesuits. Prussia, which was incorporated into the German states uh, about 80 years later, Prussia, in, in the German, the address to the German nation, the founder of Prussian schooling, it's Jesuit schooling, but he said this this is what education is for. Education should provide the means to destroy free will. They just said this with a straight face. This is like, this is how we shape them. We destroy their individuality and their free will. If you want to influence the student at all, you, do, you must do more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him. And fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will. Otherwise, what you wish him to will. So this is just like at MTV, we don't shoot for the 14-year-olds. We own them. I mean, it's the same concept. We will govern your minds, and we are the ones that pull the wires that control the public mind. We're the invisible government. Your tastes are suggested. Your ideas are formed by men you've never heard of media, and worldly schooling put together. Now you're thinking, okay, that's Germany, that's 16th century Europe with the Jesuits. How does that apply here? The year was 1844. Oh, isn't that an interesting prophetic year, biblically, that Horace Mann had returned from visiting Prussia to observe their school system and the regimented system of automatons that they were creating, and he said, we need to bring that system here to America. And uh, we can get everybody literate. Well, in New England they already were, but... It sounded and appealed to the social conscience of America to have universal compulsory schooling. Every kid must be required to attend the public schools of their state. By the 1890s, over the next 50 years, they got that system in place, and we had a national public schooling system by the 1890s. Now, is it interesting that the 1890s was also the decade that the Seventh-day Adventist church school system was birthed? Is it interesting that 1844 was God's year to begin the last days movement and the preparation for Jesus' soon coming with the third angel's message and the second, uh, the, the investigative judgment beginning? While also the devil, who knows prophecy, is coming up with two methods that he will use to capture the minds of the people. I know the telegraph wasn't like some nefarious thing, and, and most one room schoolhouse teachers back there, however, are doing a great job, but the groundwork was being laid for a massive system of media thought control and a vast centralized, uh, uniform public schooling system that's going to, as you hear here, have a whole different intent than most of the teachers that you know and appreciate. So Horace Mann started that in 1844. By the turn of the century, the the John D. Rockefeller Education Board, who, you, you know where our public school system came from. It was funded by these big billionaires of their time, the most wealthy people around, who, for some reason, really, really, really wanted to fund a public school system that would do this. In our dreams, they said, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. This is Jesuit education. Come to America, isn't it? They're going to be docile. They're not going to be thinkers. We're not going to teach critical thinking. If we teach critical thinking, we got a problem on our hands. Because the present education conventions, we got to get rid of that. We've got to get rid of traditional bootstraps, individualist America. Unhampered by tradition, we will work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. That was during the time of industrialization, urbanization, the rural folks coming to the cities, people coming from Europe to the cities, and they said, we're going to work our own goodwill upon them. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. I used to show this quote to my students like the second day of school <laughs> and they'd be like, what? This is not a normal class. Whoa. I, when, I get, when I encountered this quotation, it totally floored me. We shall not help these children become men of learning, men of science. We, we have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen. I do think we have an ample supply of politicians. But the rest here, it's like, this is good stuff, right? Uh, What is the goal, then? Let's say it again. We want them to yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. Docile, thoughtless, contented. By the 1890s, the American public schooling system... Was thoroughly Prussianized, and the Commissioner of Education for the US government was William Torrey Harris, and he said in 1906, by that point, 99 students out of 100 are automatons, automata. That's robots. Careful to walk in the prescribed paths. By the way, we should be careful to obey, and children should be obedient to authority, parents, teachers. So there's like, there's two sides of this pit. There's what we're going to hear in a minute. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. <laughs> it's like, do whatever you want. To. Total liberation from all restraint and law. That's Satan's option number one. Satan's option number two is destroy free will. Jesus says, I want to validate and, 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 and uh, empower your free will so you can choose obedience. See how that beautiful tightrope we can walk by his grace. Satan's got the two options here. But he says, this is not an accident that that we got automatons, like 99% of the students. It's the result of substantial education. Wait, 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 wait. That's not education. (laughs) But his definition of education is the subsumption of the individual. To subsume the individual into the collective, into the group mind. So their individuality and their creative capacity and critical thinking ability is no longer there, and they are captured by the herd. In a study on divergent thinking, by the way, they found little children, almost all of them are creative geniuses. After five years in school, only a third of them are. And after 10 years in school, only 10% of them are. And by the age of 25, only 2% of the population remain with the ability to think divergently from the box that you're taught. I think that's growing, by the way. (laughs) Um, But, or maybe this is an illusion. Maybe I'm overly optimistic. Because going into the last days, this looks pretty... Bleak. 2%. Isn't it interesting he said 99% and then literally we're at 98%. Pretty close. I mean, he, was, he didn't have a study on that. That was just his verbiage. But, um, you know, the system was designed also to destroy the family. Edward Ross, in his book called The Social Control, said, well, our goal here is to collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social meeting board. So what a social control experiment not the family, collect them from the household, and this will be a system of collective parenting, actually. The child passes more and more into the custody of community experts. The community experts are more qualified to perform the complexer functions of parenthood. So the, the state will be the parent. In particular, attitude toward control of the child is likely to change. These are a bunch of different social engineers. I'm going fast. I won't tell you about their everybody's biography, but... Each year, the child is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. The plea in defense that the child is my child will not be accepted much longer by society. Now, there, of course, are situations where, where, where uh, derelict parents who are abusive, and you've got to have you know, police powers of the state to come and protect the child. But they're talking about society-wide as a policy, as the rule, not the exception. It says that the people won't be able to plea that the child belongs to them. No, it'll be, it'll be social control from the top down with the media and the school. Oh, I just saw a news story last week about pizza and choices about medical choices being made by the, by the state, by the school, and parents uh, oblivious. And WHO said, your child simply being enrolled in school is tacit permission, parental uh, consent to the child undergoing uh, medical procedures. Pretty, pretty interesting the direction we're going right now. Um, scientific reconstruction of the social order? Yeah, that's a, that sounds like quite a feat. We're going to totally reconstruct society from the top down, scientifically, with, with a, a technocracy, if you will. And they called it a new public mind. How will this new public mind be created? Only by creating tens of individual li- li- little minds, and then, tens of millions, and then welding them into the new social mind This is the whole world wonders after the beast scenario. This is the collective mind control, not just the individual hypnosis, but the mass psychosis, the mass hypnosis. Through the schools of the world, we shall disseminate a new conception of government. That is key, because in Revelation 13, the role of the state changes. It's no longer to protect life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. It's no longer to protect life, liberty, and property. It says, no, we will enforce counterfeit religion, and you do not have religious freedom anymore. That is an idea that will be inculcated through the schools who will abandon all notions of individual freedom, and the new conception of government will postulate the need for scientific control that will embrace, the government will embrace all the activities of men, even our worship choices, even very personal choices. It's going to be authoritarianism, of whatever flavor. I mean, people get into left and right and all of the nonsense political disputes as if it matters whether it's a Nazi fascist regime or a socialist communist regime dictating to you or a papal dark ages uh, church-state marriage that is enforcing false religion. They're all forms of tyranny. It is to be expected that advances in physiology... This is Bertrand Russell. You know him from earlier. Advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. So he's saying, look, you got you got the Eastern Bloc communist countries. They are boot in the face, right? I mean, you have no freedom over there. But he says, with our enlightened methods of social engineering, using psychology and physiology, you think the health message is important? We will be able to have more control over people's minds without having to bring the coercive control as much. And and then you can bring the coercive control. That's a preparatory stage, as you know from Revelation 13. It's going to get coercive. But Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will. We read that quote earlier, the Prussian guy. So that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than their schoolmasters would have wished. Isn't that an amazing statement? We're going to make them incapable of thinking. Diet, injections, and injunctions, by the way, I've been quoting this for 10 years, so there's no no axe to grind at the moment. It's just the same slide that's always been there. Diet, injections, and injunctions, and no, I don't have the answer to your question you're thinking right now. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age. I underlined that because you got to get them young. When you start early, like the baby in the arms, corporate America, the corporate establishment going after them, you start... Early with school that was one of the prussian things kindergarten remember the german word we're gonna get them at five And yes, there's nice people who want to help with head start and daycare and preschool and all that Wonderful because if they're neglected and they're being raised by TV or social robots. It's better than that, right? But ideally we got the family intact and you got children, you know till 8 or 10 Just in the warm embrace of that parental ideal family And I know I'm painting an ideal picture and all we can do is our best in our unique situations But they want to get them early To produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable and any serious criticism Any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible I believe that's the case right now for a swath of society that it's just psychologically impossible to go there Um, It's a a conditioning that thinking that way is not permitted We have mean names for it that makes you sound uh, irrational and a conspiracy theorist and whatever But um, you got the idea? The mind control, worldly media, and schooling, we can break free. We, you know, when, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. Right? Have you read that in Isaiah? Whew, I love that promise. And it says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. So never get bogged down by that information I just shared with you as we switch into an even more serious topic of spiritualism in the entertainment industry. But know that we can take, take a break from it. We can say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause from that. I'm going to get in God's word. Reset the brain." be transformed and renewed, and then you'll be able to identify deceptions that you never thought were coming. And you'll know the Bible truth and be prepared, because God's given us the script. We don't need to be worried about what's coming. And we have nothing to fear, except we forget history. And those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. But I mentioned the spiritualism. This is Rudolph Valentino, a 1920s actor. Oh, and it's 1920s and on. we get a lot of info on spiritualism in the entertainment industry. Every night, Valentino's wife would hold a seance. Now, how? How often did she hold a seance? Every night. Do we have, do we have daily devotions, do we have family worship? Every night. Because the spiritualists who created the entertainment industry, the occultists that brought us these movies, had seances every night. She would call forth help from the spirit world in her creative undertaking. Then, pencil and paper in hand, she would go into a trance and start writing. After her outpourings were typed up, they were brought to the set the next day and given to the director. So the early movie scripts were coming dictated by demon spirits through seances. Mae West, who was known as a one-woman sexual revolution in her day, received inspiration from psychic phenomena. Her psychic recalls that she'd pace around the room, saying, forces, forces, come to me and help me write a script. She would begin to hear voices and images as the plot was revealed to her. She would lie in bed in a trance-like state, dictating as the spirits entered. Same concept in the 1930s. You've got the spirits, these are not the holy angels, by the way, who are dictating Hollywood scripts of an immoral character. Even modern actors, most people don't think of Oprah Winfrey as an actress, but she was in a movie called The Color Purple. This was actually shown as a part of my history program in a Christian school. And so when you go to Hollywood, you figure, hey, it's a movie about history. No, it's educational. But as she was acting in that movie, acting from people who had lived in the American South 150 years before, 100 plus year, 150 plus years before, in, this, in the antebellum South as slaves, she says, This is how I see acting. I use my body to be a carrier for the spirits of those who have come before me. What do we call that biblically when your body is a carrier for another, for, for a spirit? That's, that's possession. He says, I tried to empty myself and let the spirit inhabit me. The spirit's of the dead, which we know biblically we are not to be communicating with the dead um, because it's called a familiar spirit in the Bible because when that spirit appears, it says, in the seance, oh, I have all this knowledge about you. I am your son who died, and I'm in a better place. All of that kind of thing is a occult witchcraft ritual. The devil is impersonating. Demons are impersonating. It's a familiar spirit. And so uh, it was like when, when um, Samuel or when, when, when Saul went to the witch of Endor, and you actually see the medium communicating with, I have to put this in quotes, the dead. Sam, this, is, this is Samuel, but he's doing the work of Satan at the bidding of a servant of Satan. So you know what this is all about when we talk about communicating with the dead, um, being a medium. Peter Sellers used the word, he said, it's rather like being a medium and laying yourself wide open and saying, I want a character to inhabit my body. Inhabit my body. That's what we just heard here, right? They're going to inhabit me. Same concept. He says, I'm going to inhabit my body, or that that spirit is going to inhabit my body and take charge of me so that I can produce what I hope to produce. Robin Williams said, but there's also that thing, it is possession. So he used the word possession. He's not... And he's not being flowery language because he says in the old days you'd be burned for it. So literally, they did do that to people who were practicing witchcraft and demon possessed. They would, they would throw them in the water, drown them, or they would burn them to death. But there's something empowering about it. He thought he ended up committing suicide. Very sad. It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where you really can become this other force. So he thought. Very tragic. There's another historical film that was in my history program when I was in high school and college. Watched this one twice, actually. It's called Glory. It was about the 13th Regiment of the Massachusetts Union Army, which was an African-American regiment solely, fighting against the South to free the slaves. Pretty cool history. Uh, But when you go to Hollywood for it, um, you get some weird stuff. Because you get actors who are like, wow, that was a powerful scene, Mr. Washington. How did you act so powerfully in that scene? They said, you were so in charge. How were you so in charge? He says, basically what I did was got on my knees and sort of communicated with the spirits. And when I came out, I was in charge. I couldn't have acted that. I couldn't have made a decision to play that part. So he got some help, didn't he? I mean, he got on his knees before the spirits. Um, This is not Christian theology and prayer to the Most High God and Jesus Christ. This is getting on his knees before the spirits, and then acting in a way that he says, I could not have acted. Now, that's some of the actor's in, in Hollywood, but the um, musicians are even more numerous and flagrant in their demonic allegiances. And they trace their ideology and their philosophy to Alistair Crowley, who the BBC called the wickedest man in the world. He's the founder of 20th century Satanism, basically. He was Satan's chief of staff, in his own words. And he said he could become a genius in music through practicing his Satanism and that, that music could be used. Through so the music industry, we're going to find an army of youth to bring in the new age. He advocated having a secret room with moving mirrors to invoke spirits. And his book was called The Book of the Law. Now that might confuse you. Like the law, yes, the Ten Commandments, God's law, love your neighbor as yourself, and love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. I said those backwards, but the law, no. His, his, his law, he says the whole of the law is not summed up with love God and love your neighbor, and you got the first four commandments and the last six commandments, like what you know from the Bible. That's not the law he's talking about. He says, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Do whatever you want to do is the whole of the law. And so Anton LaVey's Church of Satan taught this exact thing. That you are your own God by making your own rules. Just like Satan said, I will be in the position of God. He said to Eve, you will be like God. Same thing with this modern Satanism. They're just coming out with it and showing the evil imagery to be blatant about it. Um, There's more subtle forms of altering the law of God that look Christian, though, right? That's going to be more deceiving to Christians. I find the truth within myself. That's what Satanism teaches. The Bible teaches Jesus is the truth and his word is truth. Follow your own desires. Follow your feelings. Follow your heart. We'll come back to that concept of follow your heart in just a bit. But first, I want to quote from the book The Great Controversy, which, by the way, if you've never read the book The Great Controversy, read that book. Like, get started now. Just read a few pages every day until you're done. And don't stop. Because you do not want to miss that book before events in this world heat up more. Um, we got get we got to get moving on it. <laughs> read that book. It is a page-turner. And if you're not as interested in the history, like the Luther chapters, you know, uh, just press on. But you've got to read the second half of the book. Um, I, does anybody know Dr. Peter McCullough? He's, he's been on the news, big, big name guy. Uh, I gave him a copy of The Great Controversy. So I had an sh- opportunity to spend the weekend with him. And I told him, now you've got to read the second half of this book especially. Start with the chapter on the pilgrims. Because he's advocating for liberty of conscience with all the issues we're facing right now. And he said, I'm going to read that on the plane. And I'm like praying for him. like, we got to get everybody reading this book and people are open right now cuz they're like what's going on? this i don't recognize this world. this is dystopia. this is not utopia. utopia the idyllic, you know, perfect society that thomas more envisioned in his novel, you know, hundreds of years ago. the dystopian concept is the 1984, the creepy crazy sci-fi future is upon us. and you know, he's up there going, i can't make sense of this. he's going, this is this is malfeasance wrongdoing by people in positions of authority. What is going on with the public trance, with the inability of professional people, scientific people, professional positions? And where are we all? We're AWOL. He's, just, he's at a loss. He can't explain what's going on in the world. He hangs out with some Seventh-day Adventists for a weekend. And we have lunch together. We're talking. We're getting to know each other. By the way, he teaches abstain from alcohol. Isn't that something? He's not, he's not coming from the Adventist health message perspective, but he knows the science. He's a cardiologist. Oh, yeah, alcohol is good for your heart, right? It's not good for your heart, and it's definitely very bad for cancer, all cancers. But anyway, um, I shared that book with him. He, he read the second half, um, and he said in a, in a group of folks, those Seventh-day Adventists are onto something when it comes to what's going on in our world and with prophecy. That's the latest. Stay tuned and pray. I uh, just love, love, love the brother. So um, anyway, this is from the Great Controversy. It says, And to complete his work, Satan declares through the spirits that true knowledge places man above all law. Isn't that what we just read? That's Crowley's teaching, that you are above all law. So spiritualism is going to teach in the last days. This was written 50 years before Crowley. Whatever is, is right. You're 30 years before Crowley. That God doth not condemn. Now listen to this part because we're going to come back to it. Great controversy says that in the last days, spiritualism will be teaching there's no sin. All sins, sins which are committed are innocent. There's no sin, and desire is the highest law. Desire. Remember those two things. There's no sin, and desire is everything. Okay. Now, the rock music movement exploded on the scene with the Beatles, the biggest band of all time. And did you know what their whole theology was? What was their message? What was their belief system, their worldview? The whole Beatle idea, according to John Lennon, the whole Beatle idea was to do what you want, right? Do what thou wilt. He's quoting Alistair Crowley. Did anybody know that? The Beatles is fun. Yeah, I mean, I I grew up hearing their their music, you know, my dad was in that generation. I didn't think of the Beatles as satanic. You know, I thought of Metallica as satanic and, you know, there's the music that I was dabbling in at the time. But, but they put Aleister Crowley on the cover of their album. Like, this is a diabolical, satanic man. And they said, these are people we admire and like on the cover. In fact, not just people. But he is the whole Beatle idea, do what thou willst. And the name of the album was called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And in the music, in the song they sing, 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. Well, 20 years before the release of that album was when Aleister Crowley died. It was exactly 20 years. When Aleister Crowley died in 1947, they came out with this album in 1967, and they said, 20 years ago today, Sgt. Pepper taught the band to play. So he was their impetus, their their inspiration of their message that they put through. Do what thou wilt" is the whole Beatle idea. Led Zeppelin, probably the second biggest band of the 60s. Um, Jimmy Page said... I feel Crowley's a misunderstood genius of the 20th century because his whole thing was liberation of the person. What you want to do, do it. It's not liberation, it's slavery to sin. The Bible says we will either either serve God or sin. It's one or the other. What you want to do, do it. I've employed a system in my own day-to-day life, and that is the way big names are made these days. How were the big names made in the music industry? By employing Crowley's system. Did you catch that? All the big names were made by following this Crowley's genius. Um, his admirers were all across the board in the 60s and 70s and 80s. You've got all the evil-looking people that probably don't surprise you that they were Crowley followers who sang about sympathy for the devil and I'm wearing Crowley's uniform and all sorts of stuff like that. But then one that surprises people is not just the rock and the death metal-looking stuff. We're going to get into pop And hip-hop, here's the king of pop. Michael Jackson said, I have my own secret room with a moving wall and mirrors. Well, that's what Crowley taught, is invoke spirits through that method. That's where I talked to Lee Liberace. His is the voice I hear in there. I feel his presence so very close to me. So he thought he was communicating with the dead, the famous piano player Liberace, but was deceived also just like others who thought they were communicating with the dead. Now, the most grievous and blatant example of Crowley in the history of the music industry, the Beatles were a little cryptic, you know? 20 years ago today, you got to figure it out, you know? Jay-Z comes out with a sweatshirt from his clothing line, in old English script, in quotations, with do-what-thou-wilt plastered straight across it. And so somebody put the two guys together, and that was appropriate. But remember the quotes I told you to remember from the great controversy? This is what Jay-Z sings, or raps. He says, I live by you desire. Well, didn't we read, Spiritualism will teach in the last days that desire is what we live by. Loving desire is my scripture. My scripture is the word of God. I hope you can agree with that. But the hip hop message of Jay-Z is: loving your own desires is your scripture. The Bible calls that your God is your stomach. We formed a new religion. Now, that's not quite correct because Satan formed it when he rebelled in heaven and became from Lucifer to Satan. But that, it's a religion. Like, they're admitting this is not secular music. No sins. Hey, where have you heard that before? That's why I'm telling you, read The Great Controversy. This book is way ahead of its time. No sins, as long as there's permission. So that's like consensual arrangements of immorality. Anything goes. Love is cursed by monogamy. Wait a minute, monogamy is God's design for marital unity. One man, one woman. They believe that that is a curse to their version of, I have to put this in really big quotes, their version of love. That's not love, that's just immorality, promiscuity. It's something, licentiousness, there's a good word. It's something that the pastor don't preach. Amen, amen. That's the one line in the song I can agree with. Yes, the pastor does not preach, do what thou wilt. But all these singers and bands do. I'm free to do what I want any old time, says one of them. Do what you want to do, whatever, whatever, whatever gets you. It's my life and I'll do what I want. These are all different songs, I'm not going to cite them all. Do what you want to do, what you want to do, try hard to live your life, live right the way you want. Hey, I need to feel, uh, do what I feel like doing, so let me go. Do what you want to do, go out and seek your truth. Wait a minute, isn't it the truth? I've been hearing that more and more the last few years, where people say like, yeah, he spoke his truth. His, like, does everybody have their own unique truth that is different than other people's truth? Like, the truth the. Truth is. It's not like my version of it, because if it contradicts another person's version of what they think is true, then they can't both be true. So what is truth? It is an absolute. It is a, it is a definite. I am what I am, I'll do what I want. Do what you want to do, go on and do what you want. Do what I want, because I can, if I don't, because I want to. Are you hearing Crowley throughout the music industry here? Do what you want to do, there ain't no rules. Anything you want to do, do what you want, do it boy, do what you want to do, do what you want to do, do what you want to do, do what you want, let me hear you say it's my thing, I do what I want to do, just be yourself any way that you want to, any way that you can. Okay, that slide is like Crowley, (laughs) then you get more. Life is ours. We live it our way. The only way to find true happiness is to thine own self be true. Because remember, truth is all within yourself, right? That's what Satanism teaches. You've just got to believe, believe in yourself. The truth is all within yourself. Trust your heart. That's another tenet of Satanism. Why second guess what feels so right? Just trust your heart and you'll see the light. True to your heart, you must be true to your heart. Trust your heart. Follow your heart and nothing else. I've come this far with the truth of my heart. This whole world can fall apart. You'll be okay. Follow your heart. Let your heart lead your mind. Follow your heart. You've got to follow your heart. Trust your heart. By the way, what does the Bible say about the heart? It is deceitful. And don't, yeah, you can't trust it. It's desperately wicked and deceitful. It's, it's deceitful. That's not something you trust. Listen to your heart and what it says. Listen to your heart, listen to your heart, listen to your heart. These are all different songs. I'm not just quoting the chorus for you here of one song. The heart won't lie, it is deceitful. It is deceitful. Listen to your heart, girl. Okay. So Crowley, boom. Yeah, music industry followed him. But the musician behind the music is Satan himself. Robert Johnson attested to that when his mentor, Son House, the famous blues musician, said the way that he became so gifted at guitar, he went from talentless, incapable at a guitar, terrible guitarist, to the most successful innovator in music in the 20th century, inventing the rock and roll style guitar. It was called Rhythm and Blues, which transitioned to rock and roll. But he sold his soul to the devil, according to his mentor, in order to be able to have that ability. And he got that ability overnight, which just doesn't happen. Um, It was at the crossroads of 61 and 49 where this transaction took place, and the devil took over his life at that point. And he sang about it in his songs about being oppressed by demons and stuff like that. Um, By the way, if anybody's like, well, I was involved in the occult, does that mean, like, since I made that agreement and sold my soul that it's gone forever? Is that in the Bible? That's not in the Bible. I had a, I had a young person come up to me once, and that they were afraid that they were lost forever. And, like, that's not in the Bible. There's no selling your soul. To, do you want to repent? Jesus says you can repent and come unto him, and you'll have life. And he says if you want to be made well, you will. I mean, there's a million Bible promises. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. God owns us twice, by creation and by redemption. Little Richard says... I was directed and commanded by another power. So this is the real musician behind the music industry, right? Satan himself. I was directed and commanded by another power, the power of darkness that a lot of people don't believe exists, the power of the devil, Satan. Does that sound like Revelation 12, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan? Does this guy sound like he's known some Revelation series in the past? Yeah, you know his story. Yeah, he was, you know his story. He was Seventh-day Adventist in and out of the church, struggling for many decades. His family members would confront him and be like, Richard, why are you doing this? He's like, got to pay the bills. They're like, you know you're working for Satan. You've said it to the media. He said, you got to pay the bills. And um, then, as an elderly man, two years before he died, he went on 3ABN. He repented of it all, and he's with Jesus. I don't mean literally right now, but he's on Jesus' side at the closing moments, uh, years of his life, and he'll be up in the right resurrection, praising God with a true sacred music. John Lennon of the Beatles said, I feel like a hollow temple filled with many spirits, each one passing through me, each inhabiting me. Oh, this sounds like those actors and actresses, right? A spirit inhabits me. These guys were possessed. They say it. That's not anybody's opinion. Each one inhabiting me for a little time and then leaving to be replaced by another. Talking about the writing of his songs, Lennon said, I don't know who the blank writes it. I'm just sitting, and the whole blank song comes out. Wait a minute, the Beatles' music? They didn't know where their music came from. That was a huge eye-opener to me. This is like the anthem of a generation, the soundtrack of America and England, for that matter. And then you go, well, actually, we don't know who wrote our songs. We didn't write them. Okay, you were possessed by spirits. That's not looking good. Keith Richards said the same thing about the Rolling Stones music. Songs, yeah, they think you wrote it. Really, you are just a medium, like being at a seance. Songs come to me en masse. I didn't do anything except to happen to have been awake when it arrived. So he didn't write his song. People think we wrote our songs. Yeah, just about everybody thinks the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Led Zeppelin were musical geniuses. Nope, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant, they received the song Stairway to Heaven, the most played song in radio history and other music, referring to themselves as a musical medium. They said that they were channeling the music. That's a word from the occult, channeling. They said the music was offered to them. And Robert Plant describes automatic writing when he says, my hand started writing. It wasn't like I I, I wrote the song, like my hand started writing. I almost leapt out of my seat. Has anybody ever had that happen, where you're sitting there, and your hand begins writing, and it startles you? You're like, what is my hand doing? That's the occult, that's, that's, that's demonic. Ginger Baker of the band Cream said, it happens to us quite often, it feels as though I'm not playing my instrument. Okay, so the writing of the song, the possession, the musical style, Crowley and ideology of do what thou wilt, and the very playing of the music at the concert. Something else is playing it, and that same thing is playing all three of our instruments. That's what I mean when I say it's frightening sometimes. We'll all play the same phrase out of nowhere. It happens very often with us. By the way, I talked to a lady who, was, who, who had this happen to her as a piano player. I was speaking at a church in Atlanta, and she, she was, her family was the one that housed me at the church when I was staying for the weekend there. And she says, oh yeah, I play the piano, and it's a gift God has given me to play well. And she says, but I abuse that gift, and I could play... Like little Richard, I mean, I could play rock music without a drum set. I could get the piano bouncing off the stage, and I could get the people in the congregation dancing in the aisles because she would go to the charismatic churches and hire out her services. She was a Seventh Day Adventist; she knew better, but she was over there playing for them to get them whooping and hollering and ecstatic and flopping on the floor and all that. And um, it, was, it was paying paying the bills. And but one time when she was playing, conviction broke through the din and the noise. I'm going to quote it in just a second, but let me finish the story. Um, And God spoke to her, or an angel, and said, you realize you're not the one playing right now, don't you? And she stopped playing and walked out of there and never went back. True story. Second Selected Messages, pages 36 to 38. Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted in the last days. Satan will make music a snare, not by the lyrics in it as much. I mean, we're talking about that with these guys. But it says, it will be called the moving of the Holy Spirit. So it's a Christian setting. It's a deception. It will be called the moving of the Holy Spirit, but the... Okay, let me back up. Drums, music, and dancing will make the senses of rational beings become so confused that they are not able to make right decisions. And it'll be called the moving of the Holy Spirit, but Satan will make music a snare by the way in which it is conducted. You can look that up. Read 36 to 38. Read the whole section, because they're talking about a historical instance in Indiana. Not Ohio. Uh, Indiana. Oh, we've, all got, we've all had our struggles in the past and the present, haven't we? Um, in Indiana at a camp meeting, they were getting wild with their music back in her day. And, and she wrote that in there. And Selected Messages, Book 2, pages 36 to 38, and then it says, there will be more of this in the last days. And it says, this is what it's going to be like. And it says, demons blend with the din of the the noise, something like that. And it will be made into a carnival where music is supposed to be sacred and uplifting. And it should be filled with joy. I mean, I see people leading song service sometime when I'm sitting up on the platform getting ready to speak, and the song service lady is trying to get people, you know, enthusiastic about the Lord and singing with joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, Because it says in the council, it says, the heart must feel the spirit of the song to give it right expression. And she's up there going, come we that love the Lord and let our joy be known. Let our what be known? Joy. Joy. Okay, so we're thinking about the coming of the Lord, marching to Zion. And she's singing about joy, and I'm looking out there, people going, and let our joy be known. Join in a song of sweet accord. Join in a song. <laughs> You're not letting your joy be known. So you see the balance. It's not a carnival. It's not dancing in the aisles. But you know, James White would walk with his Bible and tap to keep the, the, the rhythm of, You know, not from dragging like a funeral dirge when it was time to sing. So we got to find that right balance. So anyway, the piano, it's a beautiful instrument. It has the rhythm, but we don't overdo it. We don't we don't bring rock music into the church. I mean, that's not sacred. It's a carnival. And I've been in those churches. i played the music, as you saw. Beyoncé, another example of these types who were involved with spirits. I added some clothing to her cover art there in the burgundy, but um, what, what, what I want you to see here is the cross when she's Beyoncé, and the absence of a cross, when she's this alter ego, Sasha Fierce. And horns like a goat or something? Huh? What's going on there? Goat imagery, by the way, is not what you want to be going for from like a righteous religious perspective. That's dark, satanic, baphomet type of imagery. I'll put that on the slide in just a second so you can see it. But she says, when I see a video of myself on stage or TV, I'm like, who is that girl? That's not me. I wouldn't dare do that. I created my stage persona to protect myself so that when I go home, I don't have to think about what it is I do. Sasha is not me. I wouldn't like Sasha if I met her off stage. What? So is it just an act? Well, no. She says, I have someone else that takes over when I'm on stage. That's the satanic pentagram with the Baphomet image. You can see the similarity with the goat skull. And you know Azazel, the scapegoat, and the sheep and the goats, the biblical concept, the goats would be representing the satanic side. That's why Satanism adopted it, and paganism, of course, has the goat god, Baphomet. When I'm on stage, I'm not afraid of my sexuality. The tone of my voice gets different, and I'm fearless. I'm just a different person. Things I do when performing, I would never do normally. I have out-of-body experiences. If I cut my leg, if I fall, I don't even feel it. I'm not aware of my face or my body. Has anybody ever felt like, oh, I'm I'm just not aware of my face. If I cut myself, I don't feel it. That's not normal. That's weird and creepy. And she says, I have someone else that takes over when I'm on stage. I think that's enough said there. She's giving herself over to the devil when she bears the ring of Baphomet. Like, you're really asking for it at that moment. Come back. Come out of Babylon. She knew the Lord. She was in a Christian home growing up and singing at church. Um, She puts the eye symbolism on. She wasn't the only one to do that. That went viral about 20 years ago. Can you believe how time is flying? 20 years ago when eye symbolism started to become popular. About 10 years ago, she was at the Super Bowl for the first time, and she did the eye symbolism like that, And I remember seeing the blogs explode, and it's like, Luciferian symbolism is at the Super Bowl again. And then the media was like, oh, you silly conspiracy theorists. All she's doing is promoting her husband's record company because his symbol is the eye inside the triangle symbol. And so you silly people, she's just promoting a record company. But doesn't that just beg the question, why is he adopting this symbol as his record company symbol? Like, Come on, let's think. People are like, oh, okay, okay. yeah, Uh, Total Luciferian (laughs) symbolism everywhere. That's totally normal when everybody wakes up and starts doing the exact same thing. I get it. Trends do happen. But these trends have a basis and an origin. And I'm going to tell you what the origin is without having to do an 85-part YouTube series on the secrets of the Illuminati in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. Because you could spend all night digging into that. But how about we not do that? Because I'm going to give you the one-slide answer to where the eye symbolism came from. It was 1999 when Carlos Santana, who had... Been on hiatus. Wasn't a popular musician anymore, but he made a major comeback. And he said, in my meditations, the entity called Metatron said, wow, does he have your attention? He's giving you the enemy battle script here. He's communicating with an entity. And this this demon said to him, we want to hook you back to the radio airwave frequency to reach junior high high schools and universities. So there's an outreach program for the youth. Once you reach them, we want you to present them with a new form of existence. Well, we've heard what that has been preached for a generation, for two gener- multiple generations now, is do what thou wilt. There's no sin, right? All of that. Um, he's going to say it in its most blunt form that you can say it. It's the way Satan said it to Eve and to himself in heaven. Metatron, represented by the eye inside the triangle, by the way, that's where the eye symbolism comes in here, wants listeners to... In Santana's words, remember your divinity. What does that mean? You are a God. You are divine. You're a divine being. You are a God. I want to be in the position of God. I will be like the Most High. You can be like God, knowing good and evil. He says the main message that the eye inside the triangle God or entity is telling us is young people. You're a God unto yourself. I mean, that's just pure Satanism. It's blatant in your face, open Satanism. That's why that eye symbolism has been so used by the occult because they just adopt that. By the way, symbolism can be used in different ways by different people at different times and for different reasons. So I I, I don't want to be like fanatical and fearful and like somebody was scratching their eye, you know, and it like meant something. This means something. This is important, you know? <laughs> not that. Not that. Um, for example, if you were to say that God's all-seeing eye runs throughout the world and knows the hearts of all mankind, is that is that wrong? I mean, I'm not going to phrase it that way personally, but if somebody phrases it that way, that's not like, ooh, they're cueing us, that they're with the Illuminati, <laughs> So, don't get too overboard with the eye symbolism. Be rational, but when they tell you what they're doing, yeah, I know it's on the dollar bill. I could tell you the story of how that ended up on the dollar bill. Uh, you could look at the founding fathers who were Freemasonic, but they also acknowledged a creator and gave us the best form of government in human history. So, it's kind of a mixed bag there, but they're not like my ecclesiastical um, mentors, right? I mean, Jefferson wasn't exactly a Bible fundamentalist. And these guys, uh, you know. They were they were they were sometimes theistic deist, rationalists um, and had had Freemasonic connections, but spoke out against the darker elements within Masonry. George Washington specifically spoke out against that. So it's like it's a mixed bag. Like there's some decent people who are Masons and they're kind of porch Masons and they don't even really know necessarily know that how demonic this thing is that they're a part of. But we should know better because we have some counsel on it. You remember the story of what was his name? Farnsworth was it Farnsworth? Oh, there was an Australian guy, right? And, 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 and Sister White confronts him. She's like, you're giving more to the, to the Lodge than you are to the church. And you're referred to as Worshipful Master over there. And he's like, how do you know that? There's no women allowed in there. She'd received a vision. And then she flashed one of his symbols, and he's like, oh, wow, the Lord's, uh, the Lord's awakening me to this. I don't know if he repented or not. What was the guy's name? It was not Farnsworth. What was it? Oh, yeah, anyway, it's been a few years since I've looked at that one, but... Um, Anyway, yeah, it got on the dollar bill when FDR's Treasury Secretary, who was a practicing occultist, it had a lot of meaning to him from an occult standpoint. And You know, I don't view Jefferson and Washington and the guys who were saying, like, you know, this is a new order of the ages. Uh, you know, I think they meant well by it. I don't think that they were in the same sense as um, Henry Wallace in the 1930s, practicing occultist. Wallace was also enamored with Soviet Russia, so that was kind of like a weird time. Like you, you had some Red Scare coming in for good reason and also an overreaction to it, stripping away civil liberties and freedom of speech. And it was a hard time during the, during the Red Scare in the teens and then again during the McCarthy era. But um, he was the one that persuaded uh, the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve to start printing that with the, eye, the all-seeing eye on it. Pretty interesting. i got the picture of it up there. But that was the longest all-seeing eye tangent that I've ever done. I, just, I don't know why we ended up doing that, but we do think. These guys were okay. No, we know they're all serving the devil. They're open about it. But you might have thought, Sammy Davis Jr. and Sting, like, yeah, light rock. He looks like he's singing special music at church. Sammy Davis Jr. does, right? These guys are totally innocent, right? They're, they're worldly light. You know what I mean? <laughs> they're not that bad. I hear Sting at the dentist's office when I'm waiting for my teeth to be cleaned. Um, you know what? These, sting had a deck of tarot cards that he told the news that was his favorite card, was the death card. And it was designed by Aleister Crowley. And it was very meaningful to him. And Sammy Davis Jr. said that um, he was a disciple of Aleister Crowley, like a devotee. Of all the people up there, the one who loved Crowley the most was Sammy Davis Jr. And he looks the most innocent, doesn't he, of all of them? He looks the most like, like a decent guy. Right? Oh, yeah, blatant Satan worshiper. Yeah. 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 Um, You remember the slide that you hoped would end at some point? (laughs) where It was like one and then the next and the next and the next and the next. I left one off. Because if I would have had it up there, you'd have been like, whoa. I wouldn't have thought he was a Satanist. I did it my way. was the most Satanic song of the 20th century, according to Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. Frank Sinatra seemed totally innocent. So we're kind of in this heading right now, right? Uh, and we thought they were okay. Well, not so much. I totally thought these guys were okay. Because these were ones my dad was really into, and he kind of wasn't into like the Rolling Stones and the darker psychedelic drug music from the 60s, which, by the way, has CIA stuff involved. with. That's a very interesting history with LSD and with, um, with mind control uh, programs, MKUltra. Um, Terrence McKenna and Psychedelics. I mean, that is making a comeback right now. So if there's a time to brush up on a little bit of that, that history, I should do that and put a some, little something out about that. But there was a group that was for the good kids. And they, but, but they came out and said, we were doing witchcraft, trying to do witchcraft music. And one of them said, I'm doing the spiritual sound, a white spiritual sound, religious music, so white witchcraft. That's the whole movement. But by the way, there's no white witchcraft, is there? I mean, white meaning lights, meaning good. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the East, the Wicked Witch of the West, the good one, the bad one. No, Harry Potter is a good use of witchcraft in a bad. No. Nope. He says, that's the whole movement. That's where I'm going. It's going to scare a lot of people. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys is the one that said that. You wouldn't have thought songs about surfing and driving in your car beside the beach had anything to do with witchcraft. That's what they said. They said, we were doing witchcraft in our music. So under the continued heading of And We Thought They Were Okay, the 1990s famous singer Tori Amos, she may still be around, I don't know, I don't follow things, but when I was listening to the worst music I could find in the 90s, Tori Amos was enjoyed by the Christian girls in my high school. And she sang a song called Father Lucifer and stated, I wanted to marry Lucifer. I don't consider Lucifer an evil force. I feel his presence with the music. I feel like he comes and sits on my piano. That was one of the most stark quotations of the entire seminar, and it's coming from a super innocent seeming like teenage girl singer that the nice Christian girls listen to. Yikes! Same with Sarah McLaughlin. Her music even sounds sacred at times, and she's singing about an angel. That's not heavy, hard beats or polyrhythmic, you know, wild music or hip hop. She says, "I think the devil has gotten a bad rap." The devil is the fallen angel, the one who was willing to embrace the dark side, whereas all the other angels were in total denial. The devil is more like us. You know, it strikes me how she knows about the great controversy and has chosen to be on the devil's side or thinks the devil's on our side or whatever. Most, many evangelical Christians don't even know about the great controversy that Satan is the fallen angel. They've heard of it. They couldn't point it to you in the Bible. They don't know if it's a Christian teaching or not, but she knew and she took sides. She thinks the devil's just gotten a bad rap. Well, um, there was the most innocent decade of the last hundred years would be the nineteen fifties, right? Post-war family values, the baby boom, father knows best, Ward Cleaver. Some of you may even remember that decade. My parents do. My dad and mom were born in forty-eight, so they are children of the fifties, baby boomers, and. I, when you look at '50s entertainment, by modern standards, it is good, right? I, I, I should say it is relatively good. You know, Andy Griffith teaching good lessons to his boy, and you know, little little uh, was it Jimmy with Lassie, you know, and you know, in a, in a boy, you know, learning to come of age, and, you know, all these all these kind of inspiring, positive things for the most part, right? Well, this is the devil's way of being a Trojan horse is you come in with family values, I mean, even over the top. Like, I don't even know if I would like, be like, father knows best. Like, isn't that a little over the top? <laughs> but it's better than the alternative of what we've been fed for the last 30 years, of the father that the doofus and knows nothing in the butt of all the jokes, or he's gone, or there is no father. Um, fatherhood is very important, so I'd much rather err on that side of being a little obnoxious about it. <laughs> father knows best. Hey, cool, that's a whole lot better than this LGBTQIA madness where we don't even know what we are uh, in this culture today, and we affirm and celebrate uh, mental conditions that are a struggle that the people face, and I, and that's not a condemnation of that person, uh, it's, but it is a, a state of the mind. It is not a state of biology, and when we start affirming that and reorienting, even science, like secular people are speaking out against that, and they're going, oh, why am I on a trans rant right now? Let's go to the 1950s. Um, 1950s entertainment is wholesome, right? But watch this. Did you know in I Love Lucy they had a seance scene, and Lucy made the decision to be Lucy in I Love Lucy by the spirit of actress Carol Lombard who guided Lucille Ball into accepting a chance and uh, accepting the offer to star in I Love Lucy. The spirit of actress Carol Lombard. The glamorous comedian who had died in an airplane crash in 1942 appeared to Lucy in 1951. Because Lucille Ball accepted the spirit's urging to Take a chance, honey. She made television history. So she spoke to a dead friend, made the decision to leave the silver screen and go be demoted down to this little box that people were buying and putting in their houses. We had no idea how big that would be at the time, but she took that demotion and made television history and promoted spiritualism. And by the way, she you know, what was the what was the husband like in that show? I mean, this isn't quite Homer Simpson and Tim the Toolman Taylor and Al Bundy, but it was a disrespect of the husband a lot of times, and he was made a fool of, right? I mean, she was kind of a fool too at times, but um, anyway. Oh, <laughs> what's the most innocent of all? Children's entertainment, right? There's nothing more innocent than children's entertainment. So let's look at Disney. Let's scratch under the surface, like, without even trying. Have you seen Aladdin? Okay, this was like, I loved this one when I was a kid, because I was almost too old for Disney movies. It was like The Little Mermaid, like, yeah, no, I'm too cool and boy for that. But I loved Aladdin, because he was this cool, strong guy. He was running around, he's really fast, he's slipping. he's jumping, he's stealing food. Scott, did you just say he's stealing food? I was like, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. He's stealing food, because he's hungry. Did you know that's in the opening scene? The devil comes only to steal, and kill and destroy but he's a good thief because when he steals the food, then he gives it to a poor child. And he feeds the hungry monkey. And he goes hungry. He's such a good thief. We're getting twisted in this, aren't we? We're getting twisted. It's a Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Um, not to mention, by the way, that he takes his young lady that he's courting uh, away from her father's authority, her father's house. Her father is the king. Are you seeing it here in biblical language here? The father the king. The daughter of the king. She's being wooed away and on this magic carpet ride. Now, we could have just stopped with magic, couldn't we? Because we don't do Harry Potter, I hope. Like, absolutely dark and diabolical. Do not touch that stuff. I could tell you stories. I could tell you stories of people on missionary work who had that book and it was disrupting things that were demonic activity. Uh, I could tell you stories of how D.K. Rowling received the, 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 the narratives that she wrote. It was through dreams. Through, through devilish inspiration, okay? That is the darkest publication circulating widely in the world today. So, magic, we don't touch it, right? Um, it's a magic carpet ride, though. It's just Disney. It's innocent. You know, we got acclimated to that at the frog in the pot when Mickey was with his little wizard hat and his wand, and he's doing Fantasia, and it's just fun, right? 75 years ago. Well, it's not. It's dark. And he takes her off on his carpet ride, And he goes up high on the carpet. So they're at a high elevation, and he sings to her, I can show you the world, and it's splendid. Boom, Matthew 4. Satan showed Jesus the world in its splendor. Word for word, I can show you the world, shining, shimmering, splendid. Satan showed Jesus the world in its splendor. That is the exact same verbiage borrowed from Matthew 4. Then, he, the one who steals, who woos the bride away from the father who is the king, who tells her, I'm going to show you the world in its splendor, he then says, no one to tell us or where to go. No one to tell us, no, or where to go. So that's do what thou wilt, with a glittery Disney overlay. That's a veneer that deceives the unwary. And um, he then takes her up above the clouds, Isaiah 14, I will ascend above the clouds, said Lucifer. And, just in case we're a little naive at this point, okay, that's a few coincidences. Of course they're up on a high elevation because they're on a magic carpet. Of course they use word for word Matthew 4. Yeah, that just happens. (laughs) Um, But he then says, I'm just a shooting star, or I'm like a shooting star, I've come so far, I can't go back to where I used to be. Now, what is a star in prophecy? An angel. What would a shooting star be? One that fell or one that stayed in heaven? I'm like a shooting star. I've come so far, I can't go back to where I used to be. I mean, what else would that mean in the context of the movie? As I've looked back on it, I've been like, that, that has no meaning contextually. It only has meaning in the great controversy narrative. So, okay, now the icing on the cake. Because I, I don't want to make anything out of nothing. I, I present the evidence. You decide if you think this means something. I, I think we're there, but that's, that's my thought. But after this one, you're just like, really? That was there all along. How did I not notice that? He swoops down into a garden, plucks a piece of fruit, and hands it to Eve. I'm sorry, to Jasmine. That's her name, Jasmine. Not Eve. I don't know how I make that mistake every time. But... um. And he sings to her, I can open your eyes. Okay, you got it. You got the point, don't you? That's the most famous song in Disney history. Until, let it go. I don't want to sing it or it'll get in my head. I, I watched this. I watched this because the moms were begging me. Like, I haven't watched a Hollywood anything for, since, since I came out of the world and started preaching media on the brain and teaching Bible. Um, and so I don't like really keeping up on the latest, as I'm sure you've noticed. Like, the latest is Beyonce from 11 years ago. <laughs> uh, so, I, I, you know, I don't need more slides. Like, I have enough slides of examples. Uh, but the, mo- the moms were like, Scott, the kids are frozen birthday parties, frozen this, frozen presents, frozen Barbie dolls. Fro- everything is frozen frozen, 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 frozen. It was the craze in, like, 2014 or whatever that was. And so I looked into it, and I simply Googled main theme song of Frozen. And it was called "Let It Go," and it's like everybody knew that. Like my wife was laughing at me that I was just learning what "Let It Go" was because I mean she's not in the world, but she you know was more up on things. Um, and I read the lyrics, and it says, "There's no right, no wrong." Okay, you couldn't get more blatant than that. That's in the song. I won't sing it because it gets in the head. It's a super catchy song. By the way, the person that wrote that song said they were influenced by Tori Amos. Eh, maybe. Maybe there's a connection there. But definitely the person that wrote that song, two people. One guy said, the lyrics that so-and-so wrote are the ones that sound like they were written by a drag queen. Now, do you remember at the time of the original Frozen, there were some you know, evangelical radio personalities and stuff like that saying, we think this is a veiled LGBTQIA coming out theme. And I'm like, maybe, probably, but I can't prove it, so I'm not going to say it. But they're they're probably right. And then I read the guys like, yeah, these are lyrics of a drag queen. Okay, well, that is what that was about, apparently. And then I think that was proven in Frozen 2. There was apparently some type of theme along those lines. You guys are all looking at me with blank stares. Praise God. <laughs> You're like, there was a frozen two? <laughs> what is LGBTQIA? <laughs> what letters are you saying so fast? Anyway, let's, let's move right along. Um, she goes, there's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Isn't that the message of Satan, that you'll be freed from the restraint of God's law by doing do what thou wilt? This is a picture of Alistair Crowley. That right there, that's not cute, that's not sweet, that's not fun, that's not innocent. Imagine the most ghoulish, diabolical, evil-looking, demonic face behind that mask. And I know I'm picturing kind of our, our, you know, this isn't normally how I talk, I like to do information, but that's kind of a a way to think about it, because that's the meaning of no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Just coming out and saying it, coming out and saying it. Um, the last quotation that I have for you, and then I have a story, and then I have a analogy, and then I have a scripture. So when speakers do like long afternoon sessions, don't expect the conclusion to be only half an hour long. Um, I'm just kidding about that. Don't expect the conclusion to be only five minutes long because I got a little bit of content yet to go just on this part about spiritualism, and then we got to add another hour and a half on i'm just joking about that um we gotta add a few more minutes on about like the mouse and escaping the pleasure trap right so that's gonna be the best part i can't wait to in a couple minutes be done with the spiritualism stuff and cruise toward the end here because sundown is coming in mere moments and we have sufficiently covered the spiritualism content when we finish this slide now before i quote the slide I got to tell you who Perusa Balk is. She's a witchcraft actress in the witchcraft movie called The Craft, okay? Now before I quote her, um I got to give you an analogy. So, do you like to eat at a buffet? I like to eat at a buffet. I just had one at lunch kind of, right? But let's say you're going to like Sweet Tomatoes or something like that and you're going to a buffet. And you're like family, you know the rules of the road here. We come for selecting the good options because we know there's some things on there that we wouldn't touch, but we're going to go and use discernment and go ahead and select the good options at this buffet. Well, you go there one day, and you're deliberately avoiding the pork product there that has the Surgeon General's warning. It says, hazardous to your health. This is a class 2A probable carcinogen. You're like, no, that placard is not there. It's only on the cigarettes. And I said, I know. It should be there. Because the World Health Organization, they've lost a lot of credibility. But anyway, when they were in their good moments, they said, that's a carcinogen. It's cancer-causing. Processed pig meat. It's a known carcinogen in the same class as cigarettes. Did you know that was the World Health Organization? Like 2015. Okay, well, we're going to avoid the, you know, the, the, the really super rich desserts, and we're going to get something sweet and good, but we're going we're gonna to have balance here, practice the health message. Come on, family, grab your plate, and let's go to the buffet. But then somebody comes and taps you on the shoulder, and they're from the kitchen, and they're like, hey, I, I'm from the kitchen, and I made the, uh, you see the carrot dish there? I made that, and I put, I put, poison in it. (laughs) And he walks away. I know this is a weird analogy. Okay, just go with me on it for a few minutes and you'll see why. Because you're like, wait a minute, I knew there was bad stuff here, but you're telling me carrots? Did you hear that, honey? The man from the kitchen who made the carrot dish just said that he put poison in the carrots. Children, don't eat the carrots, okay? Okay, so we're not eating carrots, but I thought it was okay. But we thought they were okay. Okay, we're going somewhere with this. Okay, well, let's go. Let's go skip the carrots, but Hey, I'm from the kitchen. You see the greens? Oh, yes, I was planning on eating a lot of those because they're high in all of these uh, vitamin, vitamin K. And, yeah. Don't give me your lecture. I put poison in it. <laughs> and he walks away. And you're like, okay, family, no greens. Uh, okay, no carrots, no greens. But I thought these things were fine and, like, okay and healthy. And you get three or four or five of those. And you go, well, th- family meeting. They have not said everything on here. It's not—it's obvi- obviously not all bad. But should we stay at the buffet? And the kids are like, "Can we go? This place is scary and terrible." But Dad's like, "I love this. I want it. I want it." They better not say the potato salad. That was going to be my entree. But I don't know if I can trust it now because I have so many examples of things where they came out and told me, but they're not telling me everything. So dad or mom or sister is dragging their heels or brother. And then somebody comes out and they're like, hey, I'm from the kitchen. I know the cooks. I know the people that make the meal. I've been back there. And she's named Faroza Ball. And she says, a lot of actors, um, who don't mention their names, of course, are very much into this. Meaning witchcraft, the subject of the interview about her movie. How many? A lot. So, somebody's like, hey, I know that you were told about this one and this one and this one, but most of them aren't telling you what's what here. And I'm here to tell you a lot of this buffet is full of poison. And I just got to let you know. That's what the inside scoop is. All right, family meeting. First question Do we even need to have a family meeting about this? No, let's get out of here, right? I mean, so that's the rational, reasonable, non fanatical, smart, and obvious thing to do at that point. When you learn what's really going on in the entertainment industry, the decision's already made for you. Why would I risk it, play Russian roulette here, and end up with demons in, in my me, living room, watching them on TV, listening to them in my car? I don't want to touch that stuff with a 10-foot pole. So when James says in chapter 4, verse 8, now before I quote the verse, I've got to give you the story. Yeah, you know the verse. And I'm going to do 8, and then I'm going to leave off 7. And then I'm going to be like, did you notice I left off seven? So I just gave it to you ahead of time. So now you're uh, you're hip to my little uh, teaching techno- technique there. But <laughs> We'll get there in a minute. Pastor gets on an airplane. He sits down next to the guy next to him. He says, hey, what do you do for a living? And the guy says, well, I practice witchcraft. I'm not telling a joke right now like a pastor and a Jew and a Catholic priest on an airplane. No, no, this is a true story. Pastor, I know, sits down, speaks to the guy. Hey, what do you do for a living? I practice witchcraft. For a living the man says And then the pastor says well how do you make money With witchcraft And he says well the most common way Is I will get a, a man will come to me desiring A certain lady Who is married And we will do our work He will pay me good money and we'll get the spirits To arrange for the adulterous Affair and the breakup of that marriage Like wow He just divulged that like that's, that's evil That's, that's harmful it's that's terrible um, but the pastor is listening to this going, wow. And and the witch implies that he can get anybody to do that. But the pastor's like, you know what, you wouldn't be able to touch us. Oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. <laughs> this is awkward. But the pastor says, you know, my wife and I have the protection of the power of the Almighty God in the name of Jesus Christ. And so there is no influence that these evil angels who are subject to the authority of God he, they, they will flee. They can't touch us. You wouldn't break our marriage up. And the witch says, um, you know, we, we get Christians all the time. And the pastor says, well, we, we are different. You would not be able to affect our marriage. And the witch says, well, let me ask you a few questions then, and that will help diagnose the, the situation here, the conflict. And he asks him, he begins to grill him, and he interviews him about a specific set of questions, almost all involve he and his wife's media choices. Like, what do you allow into your home as far as Hollywood movies? How about music? Tell us about the books she reads, the magazines she reads. Um, Maybe today you'd be like, what kind of websites do you visit? What, What attracts you on social media and captivates your attention where you get on a rabbit trail of looking at all of that sort of thing, whatever that might be. So he asked him about all the media, and praise God, the pastor is naming sacred music, holy inspired books, beautiful wonderful things on the screen of videos that are informational and spiritual, and he says we do not touch Hollywood, we do not touch the music industry, we don't even know what People Magazine is and trashy Hollywood novels, we don't get into any of that. And they weren't asking about video games because it's adults and it just, they didn't come up. But if it was violent video games, they would have said, we don't touch the violent video games because we don't touch the things of this world. We're just, we come apart and be separate, saith the Lord. We're Christians. <laughs> and the witch says, you know, I've never had a Christian answer me the way you just answered me. And I was a little overconfident, but in this situation, you are right. We would have no avenue to get our influence through because of the standards that you've had and the protection you've built around your home. So um, we call that the holy angels' delight to dwell. Right? Isn't that a wonderful phrase you've read from Adventist home? And um, that, that, that's a thing that is not of fear. Sometimes I hesitate to tell that story because people, oh, a demon's going to get me. You know, it's, There is no fear in love. And, and we shouldn't be motivated by fear. We should be motivated by love. Because if we have fear, we're operating out of the amygdala and the limbic system. That's not a place we want to be. Fear God and give glory to Him in the sense of respect and awe and due admiration for His majesty and His authority. And we obey because He loves us so much. So, this family did that. This pastor's wife did that. And the witch had to be backed down to admit that he wouldn't be able to. Now, there are a lot of Christians who think that they got the protection of Jesus because they're like, well, it's just the syllables, right? Jesus. Like, it's syllables by which we are saved, right? Well, if you think that, then you get into the thing like, you're not supposed to say Jesus, because then you're worshiping Zeus, and you have to say Yeshua, or you're not saved, and it's like some magical thing. We don't believe in incantations and magical words. It's the person, Jesus Christ, that saved us, not, a, not, a, not, not, the, not his syllables. Okay? So, do, you, do we have the presence of Jesus? Um, there were some guys who thought they had power, because it says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, in verse 8. Yeah, I got, I, Yeah, exactly. Resist the devil and he will free from you is the, the power and the promise and the encouragement that we have nothing to fear. So I've got to bathe that whole story in that power of the living God. How do we access that power? Do you remember the seven sons of Sceva in the book of Acts? In the name of Jesus, whom that other guy Paul preaches, yeah, Come out of him. They command the demon to come out of the men, or the man. And the man, the demon, looks at them and says, well, we know Jesus and we know Paul, but we don't know you. Who do you think you are? And they come and beat them up and rip their clothes apart. Yeah. Seven of them. Like, man, one guy taking on seven? Because that's not just a guy. Because you don't go in some sort of cavalier manner carrying rebellion against God. I don't know how rebellion, I don't mean to condemn, but they sure didn't have that connection with Jesus at that moment. <laughs> At their place in their life, I mean, God knows their hearts, but we might be like, you know what, I'm good. You know, I, I don't need to make any changes. Like, I'm a Christian, I know what I believe. We, we often leave it at that, like I know the truth. I assent to it. I know what the seventh day is, I know Jesus died for my sins, I try to love God, I go to church. Do we know Jesus, do we walk with him, do we have his presence and his power, and are we living in, ah, here it is, are you ready? How do we get, what's the precondition... Two, resist the devil and he will flee from you in verse 8. Submit yourselves therefore to God. That's the key. That's the prerequisite. If I'm in submission to God, then I resist the devil and he flees. He is afraid. He is nothing compared to the power of Jesus. And when I am in submission to Jesus, it's no contest. Me and Jesus versus the devil is a laughable contest. Me versus the devil is also a laughable contest, right? Like the seven sons of Sceva learned. Now, I told you guys about the mouse and how we'd end on a positive note of how to escape the pleasure trap, but this was a positive note as well. But it was kind of a dark presentation. I I really am always happy when the section on spiritualism is over because it's like, man, there is a great controversy. Did you ever read the chapter in The Great Controversy where it's like exposing spiritualism? And at the end of that chapter, you're like, can I read another chapter two right now? Because that was heavy stuff to understand the machinations and stratagem of the enemy of soul. We know we are in a dark place in earth's history, but it's darkest before the dawn, isn't it? And Jesus is coming soon. So we always want to end with hope and the promise and the light and the power, which we just did there. But many people are struggling to the point of addiction with this entertainment. So I want to talk about the pleasure trap as our last thing, because I left you guys hanging when I was like, the word of God. It's everything to us. We, we did the beholding Jesus, and when the things between us and him are removed like the mountains, then he's closer and more beautiful than ever. But taking a true satiation, not satiation, savoring, that's the word, of the word of God, how do we get to that point? Well, it's, it's, it's an addiction. It's a brain science issue in many ways for what we are, n- the stimulant level that we are need, needing or feeling we need. And when I was a Mountain Dew addict, it was exactly that. I thought I needed caffeine in order to have energy. I thought that the caffeine sugar rush was my source of energy. Because I'd get up in the morning and didn't eat breakfast, I hadn't slept enough the night before. I didn't drink water and exercise first thing in the morning, which I do now. I didn't spend any time at the throne of grace. I would just wake up, throw my head under the shower real quick, like nine minutes before my first period class started when I was in 12th grade. I'd get in my car, grab the Mountain Dew on the way out, and I'd walk into class two minutes late, because I was allowed to walk in two minutes late. If it was three or four, then I'd get marked tardy. but I'm going to take advantage of every opportunity here. And a front row, taking notes, brain <laughs> going like that from the caffeine, and I, I was high energy. and. High energy, masked. But about third period, how do you think I felt? The high followed by the crash. So the, the, const, the constant pleasure-seeking binge that we are on is unsustainable. I mentioned earlier boredom is harder to find now than it was in the 1950s. But in, in a way, that's true because we can just go to the next stimulant and the next and the next. But the moment the stimulant drops, we are the most bored society we've ever seen in human history. Um, They've done studies on this. They've done studies on putting a man, particularly a man who, who wants to be high energy, doing something, you know, and they put him in a room by himself with nothing to do. No phone, nothing on the walls, nothing to touch, nothing to do. Except there's this little button right here and this little thing right here that you put on your finger, and if, if, if you want, you can attach that to your finger and tap that, and you give yourself an electric shock. All right, see you later. And they're like, why would I give myself an electric shock? So they're like, just sitting here with nothing but their own thoughts. And they found that the majority of men, within a certain number of minutes of having to sit in there by themselves, would begin shocking themselves. The majority, even one third or one quarter of women, would start shocking themselves just for lack of stimulation. Isn't that unbelievable? Boredom didn't used to exist before the Industrial Revolution. You can't find it in the English language in the literature, or, or the concept. You can find it a little bit in the Dark Ages, where they would just deal with like, somebody's mental health issue that was very rare at the time, but they would deal with it as a moral issue, rather than a condition that you're ready to complain about. I'm bored. Well, that's a modern phenomenon. You know what I'm bored means? I'm overstimulated at other times too much. That's what I'm bored means. So if you find bored kids, go back to desire of ages. The more quiet and simple the life of the child, the more in harmony with nature, the more free from artificial excitement, the better it is for their development. Um, So the high followed by the crash, it doesn't sustain. Pleasure seeking is a chasing after the wind. It's an illusion. It's not real. It's not real pleasure. It's not real energy. now, the real thing about Mountain Dew that concerns me when I look back on it is that I didn't want to eat real food after drinking the Mountain Dew. Real food tasted terrible. So that's where we're talking about this. The Bible is not broccoli. The Bible is sweet as honey. Honey is sweet. But rarely and occasionally somebody might taste honey and they'd loathe it. Because, what, maybe they just ate a massive amount of ice cream and then the honey is just like, ugh. Because it's a sated man. That means satiated. That means full. Like, I've had my fill of something else. I can't handle that honey. So a sated man loathes the honey. So what are we filled with? What are we satiated with? What is satisfying us so that when we get to the Bible, which is sweet as honey, it doesn't taste sweet as honey to us? That brings up the mouse experiment. 1954, the Milner study. They allowed these mice to tap a lever. The lever made an electrical current go through the wire, which they literally surgically inserted into the nucleus accumbens of their brain, which is where you feel pleasure. And the mouse quickly learned, like, woohoo, that feels good. I like that. That's fun. That's pleasurable. And they just wanted to tap that lever again. Hmm. What shall I do? Shall I run on my mouse wheel? No, no, no. Just give me the lever. I just want that lever again. Oh, yeah, that's good. Should I eat my mouse food? Uh, Just Oh, the lever, yeah, the lever, that'll that'll satisfy. They started wasting away. They started starving, because they had the easy, quick fix. They didn't have to exercise to get the runners high. It was no effort that was required to get the pleasure. They were addicted. And the results were, they stopped eating when we're on the brink of death. Are we on the brink of spiritual death? from lack, the famine of the Word of God. We have a whole bookshelf of inspiration that points us to the Word of God. We've got a menu like you could even never have imagined 150 years ago. The Word of God, we can get these at the dollar store, get them on our phone. We've probably got a dozen of them at home. How is it that we're starving spiritually at this time? 500 years removed from Gutenberg's printing press. Well, we need to do what they did with these mice. You know what they did? They plucked that out. Hey, it doesn't work. Well, there's no artificial stimulant. Oh, I feel depressed. Oh, maybe I should do something. No, that's okay. You start eating it. Start gaining your taste buds back. Start getting some motivation. to Do something in your life. Live a normal mouse existence. How to be human again, we called it this morning. If we do not receive the religion of Christ, this is a closing quotation. And this really is wrapping up. This isn't wrapping up for 21 minutes. If we do not receive the religion of Christ by feeding upon the word of God, we shall not be entitled to an entrance into the city of God. That's a serious warning, isn't it? It's like, this is our spiritual sustenance. How do we exercise faith in Christ by beholding Him in His Word? And faith is the only avenue to heaven. So you're not going to be in heaven if you're not feeding upon the Word of God. It's not like, okay, well, i got to make sure I you know, do the Bible in the year this year, and if I read through the Bible in the year, then that earns me and entitles me uh, a ticket to heaven. No, it's only the blood and merits of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees search the Scriptures because they think in them they have life. <laughs> the Scriptures have life in that they testify of Jesus. That's what Jesus said. That's not a put-down of the Bible. It's just there's a reason we study it. It's to behold Jesus. The Bible is a means to an end in that regard. So how do we end up in the city of God? Well, feeding upon the word of God, and then you have salvation through the righteousness of Christ. That's later. I'm jumping ahead, but the righteousness of Christ. Here we go. Having lived on earthly food, having educated our tastes to love worldly things, we would not be fitted for the heavenly courts. So people educate their tastes. You see what we're talking about there? We could not We could not appreciate the pure heavenly current that circulates in heaven. That's amazing. It's like people who love the world, their tastes love worldly things, the high stimulant, the entertainment, particularly worldly, meaning sinful things, We could not, people would not even like it in heaven. They wouldn't appreciate it in heaven. The voices of the angels, the music of their harps, oh, come on, harps. Oh, it's so boring, so boring in heaven. It would not satisfy us. Where's my style? Come on, where's my style? It's what I like, it's what I grew up, it's my culture, it's my preference, whatever we might call it. The science of heaven would be as an enigma to our minds, a mystery why do people like it up here? Like, I can't can't play video games. I can't scroll my social media feed. All the things that I do to stimulate, I can't do. Like, I'm just bored. And they're going on over there with harps. Like, come on, guys. Where's the rest? This place is torture. To the person who's educated their tastes to love worldly things. We need the answer. We need to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. To get hungry for this, you've got to do this. Do a fast. Maybe you're thinking of, well, this is just worldly. You don't fast from poison, so we're just going to not go there. But maybe there are things that we should fast from that are overstimulating our tastes that aren't necessarily worldly. Give it seven days of no social media or give it seven days of limiting to time, to space, to frequency, a certain type of acceptable media and replacing that with more of the Word of God so we bring a better balance. Hunger and thirst. Reset the taste buds. Have you ever had a carrot after eating ice cream? It didn't taste very good, did it? You're like, can I get some ranch here, please? (laughs) This is like chewing on cardboard. Have you ever fasted and then broken your fast with a carrot? It is the sweetest, juiciest fruit you've ever had in your life. (laughs) Oh, honey, where did you get these carrots? So good. So when you fast, the honey is just going to be like, oh, this is a new experience with the Lord. Hunger and thirst, taste and see the righteousness of Christ. We need to be molded and fashioned by the transforming influence of His grace that we may be fitted for the society of heavenly angels. So, where we started this morning, we're ending. How do we become fitted for heaven? By being transformed, not conformed, not deceived, not involved with spiritualism, not involved with overstimulating, hyperstimulating entertainment media, but we become transformed when we look at the broad and obling truths of the Bible, that we will have a greater depth of thought and insight and character as the quote we read from earlier this morning. Satan has games and theatrical performances and mesmerism and the din and noise of the drums, music, and dancing. I just fused like four quotations into one there, but we were warned about all this. Isn't that amazing? So Maybe this is something we should take seriously in our lives. Not maybe. As we close the program, I want us to just individually have... A little prayer with the Lord, a prayer of surrender of something, commitment about something, um, incorporating something into our lives. I'm going to commit to do this for this many minutes a week or day. This is a new Bible study program. This is a new outreach initiative. This is a new thing that is a hobby, something for fun to replace media. Um, make a commitment of some kind of change. Maybe you're going, This is a weekend of dramatic change. Like, I got so much Hollywood trash, it's demonic. I am done. Maybe this is a moment of the everlasting gospel is spoken, and I behold Christ. I want to accept him as my Savior. But for most who will stick it out to the end of the day like this, we're, 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 we're taking another step. We've been walking with the Lord, and what modification is he asking? And maybe you don't know for sure until you try it. Have you ever gone to the optometrist, and you didn't have glasses, and then they told you you need glasses? Well, I was seeing fine. Which one's clearer, one or two? Um, two. What do you mean by that? Two or three? Well, two is the clearest? Well, that's a prescription, actually. You you can see clearer with glasses. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that until I tried. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Test me in these things. See if I don't open the floodgates of blessing. That's what God wants to do in our lives. Bring his presence. Bring his blessing. So um, why don't we kneel for prayer together and close the Sabbath with a decision. A decision to receive the seal of God in preparation for his soon coming, to commit to him to cut every thread that ties us to the world, and to even educate our taste buds to a more sober and simple existence like being in harmony with heavenly choirs and nature. Father, as we come before you as your children, we humbly ask for you to lead in our lives, for it is your your call, your will, And we want that to be done. We are just the clay and you are the potter. You have purchased us through redemption, the blood of Jesus Christ, and we surrender our all to you right now. We are not our own. You made us. And thank you for wanting what's best for us. That's easy to surrender to a God who loves us so much and is so wise. So with your Holy Spirit, make it clear right now to our hearts what we are to surrender, or what we are to pause from or what we are to strictly limit. And Lord, give us wisdom now on how we can fill our time that is being opened up with that decision. Fill our time with things that will bring us closer to you and work for you and service to you and find healthy recreation and relationships and good things and blessings to others and to you and that will pour back on us we know and trust. We don't do it for our own desire to be happier. We just want to make you happy. We know you want to do the same, and what a beautiful relationship that is if we surrender to your will. So we love you, and we give you our heart right now, and we say yes to that invitation. We just have a moment of, of silent prayer to make that commitment before you to ask for the courage and commitment to do it. Give us the strength, we pray. Give us the courage. Here's our heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In Jesus' name we pray.